episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. Sarah Bartnika is off this week. So a lot has happened since 2018, but if you think back to that time, you might remember that Canada's cannabis industry was booming. There were multiple Canadian cannabis businesses that were valued at multiple billions of dollars. A lot of people were getting very rich starting weed companies and trading weed stocks. And in fairness, this wasn't just about moving money around like with meme stocks during the pandemic. These companies like Canopy, Aurora, and Afria were real companies. They were spending real money to build massive facilities across the country and hiring thousands of people in the process. Then it all came crashing down. Last week, the NASDAQ stock exchange said that it would delist Canopy Growth Core because its stock, which once traded for around $60, has been below the NASDAQ's $1 threshold for too long. It's currently trading at around $0.38. So what happened? On today's episode, Jay Rosenthal joins me to explain what went wrong with the cannabis industry and talk about what's next for the sector, both in Canada and the U.S., Jay's the director of content at Dutchie, a leading technology partner for cannabis retailers around the world, and the co-founder of the business of cannabis, one of the top industry media outlets for the cannabis sector. Jay, thanks for coming on the podcast. It is a pleasure. Okay, so I want to start with a little bit of uh, recent news that came out this week. Canopy Growth Core, which you know was the biggest, I think, player in the Canadian licensed producer space is now facing delisting from the NASDAQ because its stock has traded below a dollar for too long. At one point, uh, I think it was trading around, what, 60 bucks or something? So, uh, you know, what happened there? And maybe by way of answering this, you can just give us a quick summary of what went wrong in legal cannabis. Sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll make it, sorry, I'll make it uh, not specific to Canopy because this is a larger story than probably just Canopy. Uh, But there was a period of time way back when, like 2016, 2017, um, where your ability to grow lots of cannabis had a direct impact on your stock price. Uh, The the term for it was funded capacity. So if you knew you were going to be able to grow in a million or two million square feet in Canada in a greenhouse or in a building, that was music to investors' ears, retail investors in particular, and your stock went up, right? So Canopy, Aurora, Tilray, um, Afria, there were a number of them that said, okay, we're just going to grow in huge greenhouses. We're going to have funded capacity, which was the ability to grow in big greenhouses, essentially, and millions of square feet. And there was direct correlation between saying you had the ability to do that and your ability to raise capital on capital markets, which was... Seemed great at the time, right? There was going to be lots of cannabis growth in Canada. And if Canada didn't use up the supply, then we were going to ship it around the world. You know, there was there were probably thousands of press releases out there in the world about funded capacity and the ability of Canadian companies to dominate the international cannabis market. Then cannabis legalized in Canada. Uh, and it was a rocky rollout, as it often is, um, where the supply did not meet the demand. The demand was huge. The supply was limited and of medium quality, um, and the price of wholesale cannabis flower, which is sort of what they were growing, just plummeted. Um, and really, the the folly of growing too much sort of has, has still not caught up with the industry here in Canada, and you see it directly involved in Canopy's uh, stock price. 
uh, and everybody else's as well. It's not just canopy. So the, 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 the ability to grow lots of cannabis did not equal the ability to run a successful cannabis company. It equaled the ability to raise lots of capital early days, pre-legalization. Um, and that is, a, has a ripple effect till today. Um, also the regulatory environment did not set up easy ways to both be to grow process manufacture create brands and then sell it into your own stores the vertically integrated model that wasn't possible in many uh places in canada just from a regulatory perspective so it was a it it has been a challenging and rocky road i hope at some point someone writes the definitive book about i would say like 2013 to 2019 in cannabis in canada because i think there are interesting case studies in there about who did what when and why and the result. So that's like, that's, that's the canopy answer, I think. But also, you know, you look like we're based in Toronto and, you know, cannabis is everywhere. It is, the stigma has been driven down considerably. People well, smoke cannabis anywhere or everywhere in Toronto and in lots of places throughout the country. And it's not a big deal anymore. So in some respects, like one of the successful things about cannabis in Canada is that it's not a big deal anymore. That's good. Mm-hmm. Like it's it the stigma has been driven down. Um, you know, people are buying more cannabis than ever. Uh, it's just the market realities and people and consumer behavior have not evened out to a successful and profitable business for many, many people yet. But I think there's still, you know, a future to be written about cannabis in Canada and cannabis in the US as well, which we'll talk about. But I think it's just this is a natural shaking out process that feels like it takes a very long time because we're living through it. And we know people that work at these companies and it's been a up and down and rocky road and there was great excitement. And now there is, you know, some of the Canadian companies being delisted on NASDAQ, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a tremendous, um, very visual, not visual, but very, um, noticeable event, uh, that, that sort of speaks to larger issues at play. Yeah. So I want to talk about the supply and demand imbalance a little bit. So you're saying that from the outset, there was way too much supply in the market for the demand? And not from the, not from day one of uh, legalization, because there was, there was, you know, that supply chain wasn't super robust. But if you add up all the people that wanted to grow all the cannabis and all this funded capacity, if it ever came online, and then you match that up with demand, which the actual demand, which happened, there was a huge imbalance. And this happens in lots of markets where, you know, tons of growers, companies mostly ramp up their production to meet this demand, which is a big question mark. And I think the question mark is actually the very compelling part that it's very difficult to analyze what a market will be and how large it will be before it actually happens. Uh, Cause there's lots of things at play. One, the most, the, the, one of the key factors is the easy access to, you know, dispensaries and cannabis retail, right? If, it, if there's no access to that sales, drop considerably, obviously, right? If you don't have to walk by a dispensary in your day-to-day life, you're not thinking about buying cannabis every day if you're just an everyday consumer. Um, So that's like one. Whereas when Ontario specifically ramped up like, you know, months and months and months after legalization happened, like almost a year before real retail started to hit, um, you know, brick and mortar retail makes a huge difference in a market size and access to cannabis. And that just took a very long time in every province but Alberta. So that's one thing. So while there was this, there was product to be on shelves, the shelves themselves did not exist, except for sort of some very few brick and mortar retailers and the in Ontario, the Ontario cannabis store. So 
there was the imbalance of like, we have this product, there's nowhere really to sell it. So it's not in people's faces every day and they can't actually go buy it. So there was that sort of market imbalance. And then there's too much supply. In addition to that, when there is retail and, and you know, they're, they're, they, they were growing for a stock price in many cases, as opposed to growing for a consumer demand or mm. seeing what the demand was and then growing towards that. That's like one factor in it. Uh, access to cannabis and sort of how you gauge the market. And then there's no sort of historical data. Whereas like the LCBO, I imagine, has data dating back, I don't know, 50 years. They know almost to the day per year and day of the month and, you know, you know, Fridays versus Saturdays versus Mondays, what sells, what doesn't, what products sell, what don't, how to introduce a new wine brand, for example, and what that's going to do and how much the LCBO should buy, where they should place it for which consumers and which neighborhoods, like they just are awash with data. Whereas if you start with zero of that, it's very difficult to sort of hit that target. Right. And it, it, the other part that is that people in the cannabis community, let's say, were, were even screaming about way back when, is that like every market, there's going to be an 80-20 rule, whereas 20% of the consumers are going to buy 80% of the product. Uh, now that 20% does buy a lot of product, but they are also the most price inflexible, right? If the product is of a perceived lesser quality at a legal cannabis store for say an ounce, like a, a you know a good amount of cannabis, 28 grams. Um, and that's going to cost me, you know, 200 bucks and the quality is meh. Whereas I could spend a hundred from my guy that I always bought cannabis from and the quality is better and the value is better. You know, then I'm going to split my purchases across my guy and the store down the street, the legal store. And that in every market, Colorado, California, Ontario, BC, you know, that is a really challenging nut to crack mm. getting those, you know, per buyers who buy the most cannabis, the most of the time, you know, that drive the industry to get them to shift their purchasing behavior completely to the legal market is a nut that is, has not been cracked successfully or completely anywhere. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about the black market a yeah. little bit then. Now I'm curious, like, of what share uh, of cannabis purchases are still being made in the black market? Like, I remember seeing figures around thirty to forty percent. I think in Canada, is that still true? Is that true in U.S. jurisdictions as well? How does that shake out? It depends who you ask, when you ask, where you ask. To be to be honest, because yeah. it's a very difficult thing to pinpoint, right? Like, it's hard to pinpoint sure. how yeah. much people are buying on the black market. Yeah. Um, or the legacy market, let's call it. I prefer to call it legacy market, but okay. I get it. Um, uh, it's challenging. I think in places like Ontario, it's probably more than places like BC. For reasons that, um, like, we, of course, we have a cannabis culture here in Ontario, but the cannabis culture in Ontario really mimics what's happening in BC, right? BC is the hub of cannabis culture in Canada, and, and in many respects, some of the US as well, and even around the world. Um, you know, your proximity to growers who you know, trust and like is easier, both both physically, but also, you know, uh, literally and figuratively in BC, uh, where people have a direct connection. Same thing in California. So in places that are, are like that, it's a really resistant legacy market because some of those people have made their, some of the growers have made their living being, you know, hidden from the world, except for their consumers who want to buy their product. And that still exists. Now, and that's something Canada could have done better and other markets both have done better and worse than Canada is how do you bring in those legacy market growers who grow 
unique strains, unique product, know how to do it, and consumers want it, it's really hard to bring that person into the legal market to then say, not only do we want you here, but you're going to have to comply with these regulations about how you grow, where you grow, when you grow. Uh, you have to pay taxes, right? The the industry is no longer in cash. And like, it's, it's a big leap to make. Um, and it's hard to do from a regulatory perspective to welcome those people in. So it depends who you ask, when you ask, where the market is. I think in Ontario, it's probably over 50% of the legal cannabis is being bought in legal stores, which is a pretty good number this far in. Um, I think what you don't want to see, and I think there are seeing it in California, is that number start to go in the reverse direction. Because mm. that's a really challenging like if the industry is too hard on the retail level, on the grower level, on the producer level with taxes, regulations, and growers start reverting back to the legacy market, that is really hard. And in California, I think that is happening for all the reasons I mentioned, taxes, regulations, cost of doing business, um, all of those things. Uh, so those are stricter in California than they are in Ontario, say? No, they're actually less strict, but mm. like they are stricter than not having to comply with them. Sure. Right. Right. And and if you're California, which is a great place to grow, um, and the world wants California bud, and you could, you know, say I'm going to grow and sell it all in California under this regulated, heavily taxed uh, regime, or I could grow it the way I always grew it and ship it to places where it sells for three times as much, right? Illegally. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do. And then that does happen. I mean, if you go to New York, there's lots of, well, lots of things branded as California bud and the legacy market and lots of things that probably are from California. So, I, yeah. I, I mean, it totally makes sense that it's like easier for a producer if I don't have to pay taxes and I don't have to comply with regulations. But why do you think it's so much more difficult, I guess, to get them inside the legal framework in this sector in particular, as opposed to something like alcohol, where, you know, people were brewing their own alcohol for a long time. And now no one is going and buying moonshine. I mean, very, you know, it's not a big part of the, right. the market. Why is it more <laughs> difficult in, uh, in cannabis? Well, I'll say two things. One, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a historian. So I don't know how long it took for people to, for that behavior to exist, that the people making moonshine actually started making, you know, yeah. real booze and so So I don't know, like, was it one, two, five, 10, 20 years? I don't know. My guess is it's probably longer than we think it was. Um, because, you know, I don't, I would feel very comfortable drinking moonshine, both because you don't know the quality, the provenance, like all those things, like you'd be worried about it. People aren't worried about it with cannabis, I don't think, because they've been doing it for so long. That said, one of the big attributes of legal cannabis is that it's third party tested and you know where it comes from and it doesn't have pesticides and molds and bugs and all those things. But that's a very challenging, um, uh, case to that's an easier case to make to new consumers who care about those things than legacy consumers who've been buying cannabis and have you know no ill effects i'd say uh potentially from from the previous um the other is that i mean this is specific to canada i would say that you know a big not a you know half the half of all markets is just plain flour like things you, you know, you buy the buds, you crush them up, you smoke them however you want. Like that's, that's a huge chunk of the market. Another big, that's like 50%. Another say 10% is pre-rolls, which is like that flower rolled up just in a more convenient packaging. And then everything else is everything else. I would say edibles and edibles specifically in Canada are a real challenge in that the dosage is very low for um, not even common consumers, but if you wanted to have, you know, enough edibles around your house for a month and you consume edibles a lot, you have to buy so many packages of it. 
as opposed to buying one candy bar that's a thousand milligrams and you break it up into you know ten milligram chunks. Um, with edibles, you have you know they can only sell ten milligrams per package, so it's like it's it's pretty limiting. And I think it is something that other markets have done better to to get those edibles into the legal market and get right. more consumers buying edibles in the legal market. Um, but flour, again, it goes back to the consumers, right? If it's 20% of the consumers buying 80% of the product, you know, catering to that in the legal market is really important. And this goes to like, I don't mean to sort of continue to spin around, but like the regulatory environment is really challenging because, um, well, one, it's more expensive, but also the products people want, they're going to get no matter what, right? Um, and that's that's the real challenge. And then you have, I think you have these policy goals, right? Like Canada had policy goals. Every regulator has policy goals to regulate this, right? We're going to regulate it heavily, so it's you know, so we know where the supply comes. We're going to keep it out of the hands of kids. Um, we're going to try to stamp out the black market, and we need it to be heavily regulated and taxed. So it's like the regulations, taxes, like you know, the burden keeps going up, um, which then counterbalances some of the other policy goals of regulating, you know, getting more people from the legacy market legal. Like there are these, I, I like to think of it like. Um, like you push on a balloon, like, oh, we're going to tax it heavily because we want to make money to pay for the regulatory environment. But then if you do that, then fewer people are actually going to enter the legal market from a buying perspective or from an operator perspective. So like there are these give and takes on every regulatory angle to this. And that I think is the challenge all around. And we see it really specifically in, uh, in new markets where like a New Jersey will say, okay, the state's going to regulate it this way. That's going to cost producers X. And then we're going to leave it to the cities on the retail level to say what you want, you know, opt in or opt out. And then within your city, where do you want these places, you know, where do you want dispensaries to be? So you end up with these very few pockets in a state like New Jersey where the real estate is like through the roof. You have operators trying to compete for these limited physical locations and the price of the rent. Like I know that there are people in the industry that can look at that lease and look at the operating structure of that place and say that place will never make any money because the rent is too high. And the rent is too high basically because the state set it up that way before anybody buys or sells anything, that business is going to be unsuccessful because of yeah. the regulatory environment. What when you talk to people in the industry, what are like the top one or two uh regulations, I guess, that you think they perceive as, you know, imposing the the highest burden? Um in the states, so let's say that yeah, it's because yeah. So so in the states, I'll say a couple of them, but but two of them in particular. One because it's not federally like it's federally illegal and still a Schedule One substance, mm-hmm. even though state by state you know can make their own rules. Your federal taxes, you're not able to expense lots of your business expenses on your taxes like you would a regular business. So 280E is what it's called. And like if I'm operating a business. I just can't expense a lot of the things that I normally would if I'm running. So your mm. cost of doing business just automatically goes up because there's things you have to spend money on that you can't write off as business expense. So that's that's one and, and a big one at that. And you know that could be 20, 30, 40% of your, of your business, just, mm-hmm. you know, ha- just an expense you can't write off. Um, that's one. Two um, is banking really is really challenging for cannabis businesses, especially retail ones, where you're still doing lots of business in cash and banks, especially local banks, which are really the only ones that'll bank you. um, You know, the cost of doing business in cash is exorbitant. And so you're actually paying money to the bank to bank you for banking in cash as opposed to other payments. So like those are really, really burdensome things that add up a lot, especially the smaller business you are and the more you operate in cash. So those two things, 
would make a big difference if either cannabis was rescheduled or descheduled on the federal level in the US. And if cannabis was legalized federally, a lot of these things would go away. And if it was, I would also say sort of the state by state regulations are challenging. They're different across states. But if you could grow cannabis in California, Oregon, and Washington and ship it around the country legally, the industry, it would take time to shake out. But that is, that's where it should be grown. And then it should be sold in Florida, as opposed to like trying to grow cannabis in a humid, hot, climate that you know it's really difficult to do. like it it's supposed to grow in certain places and those certain places are not near you know the markets where it, you have to set up operations in new jersey new york massachusetts and and then you have to set up an operation in illinois and figure out how to grow there and like you know growing outside is the best way to grow mass quantities of it and premium quality grows inside and not in greenhouses necessarily but in like hermetically sealed rooms and that's a that's pretty in the weeds but it's there's a lot to that is in the states do you if you say are selling cannabis in a particular state do you have to do basically your entire supply chain in that one state yeah so if yeah. you're a you know a company that has retail in Massachusetts New Jersey Florida California you need four separate supply chains in yes each state? and they all have to be in that state now there's some operations you could probably figure out how to cut and paste for each market but those good examples so I think you said Massachusetts, New Jersey, probably have pretty similar regimes like regulatory and, you know, it's pretty burdensome and like, you know, those are heavily regulated states. Florida, you can only be a vertically integrated business. So the cost of doing business is like through the roof because you have to have cultivation, manufacturing, processing and wow. retail and it's medical only. So the compliance is really hard. So like, and then California is its own separate beast, which, um, so like it is really, it's hard it's hard for businesses that have business been in business for 50 years to expand their market and go state to state. But those people generally have, you know, centralized manufacturing, processing, and then shipping to different places. Whereas this, you'd have to set up operations in each individual state and place. Um, so it is really hard. Now, this brings up an interesting point. There are big, we, in the States, they're called MSOs, so multi-state operators that are actually doing big business in some specific states. And each each MSO has their own sort of deck of cards that's like, okay, we operate in Illinois, Michigan, and Maryland, and some operate in Massachusetts, Maine, and you know Illinois. Like it's everybody's got a hodgepodge that seems to work mm. for them. Um, but now many of the states are, let's say, Michigan, Missouri, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey. They they all have a pretty similar game plan and approach, which is we have a medical program that is kind of robust and big about how people, you know, what what indications people can get medical cannabis for, and then that grows and grows and grows. And there's like a an industry, a nascent industry growing there where there's a supply chain, there are dispensaries, there are growers. And then we let that ramp up a bit. And then, you know, whether by ballot or legislative measure, we're going to add adult use legalization. And the adult use is a little bit smoother than here because there actually is a, you know, three, five, you know, 300, 500,000 patient base and a relative small geographic area in a state mm. that actually has created a supply chain that is manageable. Now, none of those rollouts have been perfect, but like, you know, Michigan, Missouri, Maryland will be more perfect than the three states that came before them just because everybody learns from the other. That said, places like New York that are really putting an emphasis on social equity as they should and really trying to bring in communities that have been adversely affected on the war on drugs like it's challenging to get operators who aren't operating now up to speed to service a massive industry from day one and giving them that advantage and giving them that sort of first go at it has turned to be a real 
challenge to get up and running from the get-go because there is overwhelming demand and limited supply of product and limited supply of people of places to go buy it, which I just mentioned at the top. Like in Ontario, that's the best way to sort of launch an industry. And that's, you know, nobody's getting it perfectly right. Everybody's getting it a little less wrong, hopefully, than the ones that came before them. And this is in the States. Um, but the overriding factor that Canada got right is that do that at a federal level because that really just evens the playing field a lot better and allows, mm-hmm. you know, a more normalized supply chain. Have have there been has there been any movement on federal uh, decriminalization or legalization in the states? Like I know Chuck Schumer was pursuing this a little bit in the Senate. Has that gone anywhere? So there is, uh, there, it, it happens every year. So there, and so yeah. I think if someone tells you they know one of these things is going to happen on a certain date, they don't know that they think they know, but they don't. Um, there's, I would say two biggish things happening in DC with a time horizon that is, I don't know. One is descheduling or reset scheduling cannabis at the federal level. So from, um, schedule one to something else, schedule two or schedule three would open up a lot of doors, certainly to banking and some other things that, would make a big difference to the cannabis industry overall. That doesn't, my understanding, that doesn't go through legislative process. That is more of an administrative. So it goes through the um, Food and Drug Administration, then the Drug Enforcement Agency, and it's sort of an executive function, uh, executive level function at the federal level in the US, so executive branch. Um, That's on the one thing. On the legislative side, safe banking. So it's really normalizing banking for cannabis businesses would be another huge boost. And that's what Chuck Schumer has been advocating for. It has passed the House a number of times. It has yet to pass the Senate. And the Senate, there is a push to add um, sort of equity provisions to it, um, which are resistant from the Republican side. So there's like a lot going on. It's seemingly a lot going on and lots of conversation in DC. That said, in the previous legislative session, there was a Democrat in the White House, Democrat Democratic Senate and Democratic House, and none of that passed. So, like, it's, it's, um, you know, the time horizons are always question marks, especially in DC, where it's really, really polarized. They can't even pass a, you know, funding the military bill. Um, and, and, and it seems, and it's true, every year you're like one second away from an election year. Um, and, and if it's deemed a legislative win for either the president or a democratic house or a democratic Senate, like it's just, you know, it's really challenging to get things through Washington. And so relying on it as sort of the be all end all for an industry is hard. So, but there are things moving, there is conversation, but like I am in the industry. So when I hear these things, like it's the most important thing I hear, but like I'm not in DC and in DC, my guess is it's like the. 10th most important thing for most legislators, unfortunately, because um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot about social justice, social equity. There's people in prison who shouldn't be. There's lots of things happening. There's an industry that is burgeoning. And actually, this goes, if I may, just for, for a second, because while I think Canada got a lot right by by, legis- you know, by legalizing at the federal level, none of the mandates of the people that legalized is to make this a thriving industry or even account for that, right? So like, it's like, okay, we're going to legalize because we want to stamp out the the legacy market. We're going to legalize because we want to keep it out of the hands of kids. We want to, you know, legalize it so we can, you know, gain tax revenue. But like the hundredth thing that they think about is like, are, is it is it a framework where businesses could thrive or or could create jobs or this would be a net benefit to a community? Nobody, very few people think that way. And I think that is the challenge when you want to go back to legislators in Canada or otherwise and say, okay, thank you for legalizing. And yes, it's amazing. But if these three things were changed, 
you know, we would have a thriving industry and like we could create and save lots of jobs. Like that, that conversation, I think here is a lot of, um, a lot of silence in Ottawa. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when legalization was happening, the companies were talking about this as sort of in economic terms, but you're, yeah, totally. Policymakers were not speaking about it in that way. And I guess, you know, we've seen some of the consequences of that with, I guess it was Canopy shutting down their operations Smith Falls, yeah. in, in Smith Falls. Uh, you know, that's a big job loss for that community. So there, there are real world consequences yeah. to ignoring that. I mean, we talked about some of the regulatory problems in the States and that, you know, seems uh, clear enough. What would, what are the, you know, three things or two things that changing uh, policy here uh, that could, you know, make it a more thriving industry. I think that the excise tax, the the taxes are really burdensome on just the product itself. Uh, That's one, the way that the actual framework, certainly in Ontario, the largest market works and and in many in Montreal, you know Quebec's a big market as well. The fact that the province and and I know that this is almost ingrained in sort of Canadian um, civic life, that the, the the fact that the province is the middle man in this scenario as the wholesaler, it, it's a lot of people to take a cut before it gets to me the buyer, mm. me the, me the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm a grower or a brand and I want to sell to into Ontario stores. I go through the province to sell the Ontario cannabis store. The Ontario cannabis store makes money on it and then sells it to, you know, a retailer who then needs to make money on it and sell it to me. There's a lot of markup, including plus taxes that add to the price. Um, and I'm price inflexible, right? Like, right. And that's, that is the challenge is that the, not, not just me, but like the 20% who buy all the cannabis, cannabis products, like I am price inflexible. And I, I know that if I could pay 25% less or more to go buy it from my guy, or, you know, there's still illegal dispensaries in Ontario and other places, you know, that it's a real economic decision if I consume a lot of cannabis, just like anything else, right? Um, and so I think like that, that model is challenging. And there are some provinces who started with that model, like New Brunswick, that said, we're only going to have New Brunswick owned stores that have said, okay, we're actually going to have some private stores too. Because going back to sort of one of the policy goals is, if we could, the, the best way to drive down the black market is actually open up retail more on the brick and mortar level, because that seems to be a truism in cannabis, which is not surprising. If you open up more brick and mortar stores, more people will buy in brick and mortar stores because it's easier, right? So there's a economic, like I want to pay less, but also I want more access to it. Um, and sort of enabling that to happen is important. Um, and we've seen it actually in other markets, right? Like in Michigan and Oklahoma, there's, it's pretty easy to open up a cannabis store. And so there's a whole flood of them, which is challenging for the industry because a lot of those end up closing. But if I'm a policymaker, that might actually like, you know, I might be willing to have a ton open for some to close as opposed to being really precious about who opens. Because if a lot of them open and some close, at least I'm giving access to consumers. And maybe that, that sort of paradigm shift is what we ought to be thinking about is how do we, if a policymaker said our goal primary for get cannabis to people faster because we know that that actually accomplishes long-term goals it's just nobody really thinks like that i think they think we're going to get this right and then we're going to do it as opposed to like we know we're not going to get it right so let's just do it and then work in reverse almost. yeah is there like a tension in the policy making around this in that they do want there to not be a black market anymore but they also don't want people really to use cannabis I don't even think it's used because I I think it's like they want to do it for a variety of reasons. One, either voters voted on it and they have to. Like that's that's been one model. Like we have to have adult use because our voters, you know, we have uh, 
We have a mechanism in our state that you know, allows voters to vote on things and they've approved it. Now we have to come up with regulations to do it. But that's more of a reluctant legislator regulator role, I would say, because they're being it's being foisted. That's not to say there aren't great champions in those places and like it doesn't matter. But like if voters say do it and you do it, you're almost advocating your role of like responsibility. And like it's hard to gain legislative or regulatory advocates in that realm. But that is how it happens a lot. That's sort of one. The the thing that is happening now is that states are being pushed. I think economically, because you can't be last to the party mm. uh, because people will go from your state to buy weed somewhere else. And we've absolutely seen that. And uh, in the first year of legalization in Illinois, they, were, they said the stats um, were that 25 to 35% of the people buying cannabis in Illinois were from out of state. Like mm. it's a lot of people traveling to the state to buy cannabis. A lot of tax dollars you are not getting if you are you know, right. a, a neighboring state. So yeah, you, you're almost being brought to the table either from voters or from an economic perspective. Um, and, and these are the states that are now legal. There are some states that are resistant to it overall. Um, but that is, uh, that's not someone saying, I am a state senator in Florida and I believe this should be legalized for a whole variety of social, economic, and whatever issues. And we're going to do it in this legislative session, get it done and get it done right. It's a different model than saying you're being basically pushed to the table uh, to do it. And that's a different, and, and I think regulators regulate. That's what they do. Um, and it's rarely in somewhat in the regulators mandate to actually make it a viable industry. They're regulators, not viable industry people. <laughs> it needs to sit in a different ministry or a different department or a different emphasis to make it viable. And I think, but there are like, I think California and Oregon are now seeing that like, Unless you support the industry or think about it in those terms, it, it, it's it will not go away, but it becomes much more difficult to do business, and mm -hmm. it's a business we want to support. Um, well, I think I think there are people like that. I mean, there are people like that in California, Oregon, just not everywhere. And I think that is the challenge. And, and not, you know, there are people that are great advocates for cannabis in Canada, but um, Health Canada doesn't see it in their mandate to support the industry. Right. It's not, frankly, it's not their mandate. They don't support any industry there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, some of the other uh, pieces of the economic case for the industry that it, we can talk about, one of them was, which you alluded to earlier, was exporting cannabis from Canada. Has that happened at all? Yes. But you can imagine if, and I think, you know, Germany, some places in Europe, you know, Israel, there's some export, but like, it's not a it's not a multi-billion dollar industry mm -hmm. like I think it was promised to be, but for similar economic reasons. Like if I'm Germany, why do I, why would I have medical access to cannabis and then have it all be Canadian when there could be hundreds or thousands of jobs in Germany doing the same thing? Right. <laughs> like, and not only just the jobs, but like, you know, these, the buildings are expensive to build and like there's, you know, there's economic impact and benefits of that as well. So if there is export, it's it's more of a I mean, this is like almost a stopgap until there's domestic supply in any of these places um, because that you know while there may not be advocates for the cannabis industry there's also people who if we're going to have one we might as well make it local right um, yeah. and and we've been we Canada has been pretty resistant to importing cannabis and it's sort of a literally a two way street yeah what about uh like intellectual property or I don't know brands or process yeah. or anything like that has has there been any sort of uh, 
first mover advantage, I suppose, for Canadian businesses since we were the first, well, one of the first, I guess, to legalize recreationally? Yes. And some of it may be very technical, like how to grow at scale inside, like the the sort of agricultural component and and some of the tech about how to do it well. Uh, But from a brand perspective, it's almost, well, this won't surprise anybody in Canada, almost the reverse. Like we have, Mm. there are a lot of, not a lot, there are many American brands in Canada that are doing okay because they have name ID across the world or not the, the cannabis world, right? Like for a long time, Wana Gummies, which is a US brand, which then Canopy actually bought a big chunk of, but like, um, like Wana was and is a big gummy manufacturer in the States that has resonance and, and led a lot of categories here for a long time. Same with Bang Chocolates, same with uh, Wild, W-Y-L-D, like it's an Oregon brand. And like, you know, there are, brands that are almost their licensing deals to get those products into new markets like here. And they're doing the same thing in state by state markets as well, because, you know, that's how you build a brand. And it is interesting to sort of watch. Um, And then there are brands that are doing well in Canada, too. Like I think of Pearson Farms, if you look at the sort of top 10 list by category, there are some that pop in every category. And that's, you know, a credit to them. It's just it's not an easy road to hoe. And it's challenging. and because uh, I think it's still relative early days in an industry, but there are products people buy and there are brands people recognize. I was in California in May for basically a brand show called Hall of Flowers. Um, and what's happening with brands in California is like it, it, like everything, like California is leading on a bunch of brands. The industry is having a really difficult time, but you see the work brands are doing and how they're sort of thinking about the consumer backwards, how to, you know, what insights can I do? Like who is actually buying the product? And like, you know, there are markets for like two gram infused blunts in California. It's a big market. Like that's not a consumer that with all due respect, that's not a consumer that health Canada is thinking about when they regulate. Cannabis. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like a two gram infused blunt will put you out, put me out for a week. Like I, I, like you, like I, but there are people that like people that buy them will spend a lot of money on it. And like, that's a real thing. It's just, you know, the, the difference between that consumer working backwards from a brand perspective and that consumer working backwards from like a regulator perspective, it's like a whole, you know, never the twain shall meet. Like it's, you know, there's a big gap there. And I think part of that is data. Like everything is new. Even the old markets are new. And so until you have data to reflect on what consumers want, buy, what they'll spend, you know, that's difficult to create a brand for. It's difficult to right size your manufacturing process and growing facilities. It's difficult to think about regulations that would mean, be meaningful to that. Um, but if you're not thinking about all those things, then your policy goals, as we talked about at top, like there's, there's a misalignment often between what regulators want to regulate and legalize and what consumers are willing to spend and how, the, how an industry would work. Um, and to go back to the alcohol perspective, I don't know historically like what that what the mismatch was when alcohol became legal right was there too much supply because Mm. people were still drinking you know unregulated beer i I honestly have no idea my guess is it took a while like the supply chains for the legacy market and cannabis are pretty resilient um and and even more challenging now than maybe even 2018 but like it's difficult to shut that down there's there's not a lot of um enforcement you could do that would shut that down other than regulate a little bit less on the legal side to make it more accessible. Because I think about, um, I gave a speech in Whistler at Whistler to a law firm pre-legalization of 2018, April of 2018. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, pretty buttoned up lawyers. Uh, it was a law firm I was talking to. And I said, you know, right now, even though cannabis is not legal for adult use in Canada, 
I could go on my phone right now and order cannabis here in Whistler and get it delivered to this room by the time I'm done speaking. <laughs> They're like, no way. I was like, okay. And you know, there's like whistlerbuddelivery.com mm-hmm. and you go on it, order it. They deliver it to the front desk very discreetly. And the people at the front desk, like they know what's going on. Right. And I said, look, it's delivered. I just got a text. Like, how would you shut, how could you shut that down? You can't. And I think that the next level of conversation is we're seeing it again in Toronto, Vancouver and some other places. Well, Windsor, like, you see it with mushrooms and other psychedelics. Like there's, you know, if, if I'm Health Canada or our police department, I don't know what to do, honestly, because, you know, uh, a storefront is very visibly selling illegal products. But what are the, like, you could you could shut them down for sure. Like they shut them down in Windsor, but, but you're not shutting it down. <laughs> you're just shutting down the no. storefront. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I just Googled uh, Whistler uh, cannabis delivery. And the first thing that came up is Whistler Bud to Go. Oh and, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, text on WhatsApp to place an order. It's <laughs> still alive yeah. and well. Yeah, believe me, texting on WhatsApp does not scream like legal, but but like but 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 how, in fairness, Whistler is a huge tourist town. How would you know that you just did a Google search and it's going to come to you like who who's at fault there? Is it Google because their algorithm is popping them up, right? Or it's an ad. Like, you know, it, it's it's a this is the thing that regulators don't think about when they are regulating because you know, they, they're regulating only the people that are opting into being regulated. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I, I don't know the solution. I really don't. And, you know, I'm a government guy. Like, you know, I came, I worked in government. Like, I don't know what the solutions are, um, but they are, it is, it is really challenging to marry up policy and regulatory and tax goals with reality on the ground in a market like cannabis or psychedelics or really anything. Um, if people want it, they're going to get it. Yeah. Of the people, you know, we do have a bunch of uh, companies that have opted into these regulations, but you know, we started talk- this conversation started talking about Canopy, um, who's uh, had some difficulties. Who are the big players left standing? And I guess the second part of that question is, if the Americans ever do get federal uh, regulations that make it possible for these MSOs to do business across states and maybe go outside the country, is there any hope of Canadian businesses competing with those uh, MSOs, or are we just going to get, you know, rolled up into American uh, companies? Um, I don't know the answer to that. There are some in Canada doing well. There, there is that. Like I, I think I mentioned Pure Sun Farms, but I'm looking at the top mm-hmm. ten list of uh, flower products in Ontario right now, and it is big companies. Like Pure Sun Farms, probably being the smallest, but Pure Sun Farms. And shred sort of dot the top ten, and shred is um, organogram. So like there are big publicly traded companies that have big market share in terms of what consumers are buying. They would argue that big market share is not translating into massive profit. So like there is a, a misalignment there. Um, mm-hmm. So but like will an organogram go into the U.S. when it's possible? I don't know. I mean I think that's a it's possible, but they don't have massive. You know they don't have a billion dollars in the bank, right? You know. That, those were year, those are days gone by. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's going to take cash on hand. Um, and there are some really well-positioned MSOs that are like have big market share in some very specific states that are huge and doing good business and profitably um, that are going to be really difficult to compete with, especially if they could go public on U.S. markets. Like if a, if a big MSO one day said, you know what? Now banking is normalized and the and NASDAQ is going to allow us to list. And they had an IPO with a real balance sheet that like, you know, a, a, a company with, that's a real company um, mm-hmm. with a track record of success with big moats around different states. 
you know, they would raise a ton of capital because it would be a new day. It would be Canada, you know, 2017, 2018. Like it would be that type of precipice, um, I think, um, which might happen in reverse. But also, you realize Canada's not a not a big market. Like, you know, I, I know it's 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 commonplace to say like we're 10% of everything of, in the US. That's true. These cannabis companies were much, much bigger than their competitors in the US because they were publicly traded, but they were bigger on paper. They weren't bigger on um they weren't bigger in sales. They weren't bigger in uh you know, they were just bigger in balance sheet and cash. Yeah. Um, but that that's not a that's not a lead forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that occurs to me as we're talking about this is like we've just been through a period where companies like Anheuser-Busch or Pepsi or, you know, these big normal companies that are selling consumer products that are, you know, different in some ways from cannabis, but in some ways very similar, they've been able to set their price and protect their margins. And it seems like cannabis companies have never been able to do that. Uh, yeah. They're price takers, you know, an extreme example. Why, why is that? Is there just too much competition in the market? Is a hangover from this like oversupply or like, what's the explanation of that? Yes, to all those things. All those things. I think yeah. it's it's challenging, um, and maybe you need again, like maybe you need some of that, like price misbalance. You know, companies going under, some companies succeeding, the first wave of companies like completely exploding to get the next wave of people who are like, okay, now I understand the landscape we're operating, and like many of these companies, Tilray included, uh, Tilray Canopy, like they set, they went public. With a business, not knowing what the regulatory environment was going to be like, and that is really challenging. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a good thing for consumers at oh, the it's, end of the day. Like, there's lots of good look, weed at a very good price. Right for, now. Yeah, no inflation. It's the one area where the prices just keep going down. It's hurt the industry, but yes, because yeah. cost of doing business has gone up, but cost of product has gone down. Yeah. Okay, Jay. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for that. That was a great conversation. Pleasure. Pleasure. Love talking to you guys. All right, well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed it, also, please do leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow the show and find more listeners. Thank you to Jay Rosenthal for coming on, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.